0: Welcome to the Intentional Growth podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 219 of the Intentional Growth podcast and Today, we have a repeat guest on the show. Her name is Allie Taylor. She is the co-founder of Orange Kiwi. She has her PhD in business psychology. So yeah, we are in for some super good information here. Since Allie was on the show four years ago, she's completed her PhD and her dissertation has an amazing amount of research, real-world experience working with clients and business owners, and we're going to talk about how this is integrated, in. and her research and work is integrated into all the things that I talk about on the show. She has worked with Bo Burlingham and all the concepts and Finish Big that we've talked about a few episodes ago when Bo was on the show, and we talk about how the integration that a business owner has with their identity and the business, which Ali calls role identity infusion, how this concept literally stunts growth of companies. We're going to be talking about the different demographics of and sizes of companies, how complexity grows as the company gets bigger, and how the business owner's attributes as an individual and the personal attributes that are the successful traits that get owners to the ability to grow a successful business, how those same attributes can be a huge weak point and an Achilles heel in order to continue to grow up the complexity scale and the scaling up of companies. And Ali going to break down how our mindset and not in the fluffy term, but truly our ability and our brain's ability to relinquish control, better understand complexity and to use others, people, systems, processes. To lean, and lean into the, that infrastructure to delegate that control to allow the business to grow above and beyond that role identity infusion that the owner typically has. That's the founder into something that is more long lasting above and beyond that original founder's personal identity. In the interview, Ali references the crazy stat that owners who relinquish control can over double the value of their business over time because of their ability to continue to grow the company, which for someone listening and say, well, that's easy to give up control. I'll tell you what, from hundreds of businesses and thousands of meetings, hundreds of podcast interviews, I see that control factor and that role identity infusion as potentially one of the biggest obstacles to continue growing the company. The next would be the right capital structure and where a company gets the capital from that is making sure that it's growing enterprise value. And we've talked a lot about where and how to get capital and how to fund growth, but today, We're going to be talking about something that everybody listening in has direct control over, and that is your relationship with your business, your desire for control, your ability to level up your management team, your systems, and your processes, handle complexity, and to learn. Learning is the gift that will allow you to shift your mindset into bigger and better things. A couple quick hits of things that you're going to hear in the podcast is how separating governance from management roles is vital The five personality attributes that I mentioned already, why your identity can either be your superpower or your kryptonite, and Ali gives amazing examples behind that, how you can align your strategy and culture to improve your bottom line by 50%, and then how to deal with the sunk cost fallacy and how to recognize the mindset. And the big piece behind this is that we've gotten a shock to the economy and a shock to our companies. And unfreezing is potentially one of the hardest things to do. So how do we capitalize on this moment of recalibration and aligning our new strategic plan with things that are going to get us to that future enterprise value that we want, the future options that we want. Lots to take away in this episode. And next episode is super fun. It's like a one-two punch because next week we're going to be talking with Todd Herman, who is the author of The Alter Ego Effect. And he's going to be talking about how his framework can literally help Entrepreneurs and owners overcome this mindset and their ability to scale and grow a company and how to practically deal with a role and identity infusion that is going to be talking about here. It's amazing because Ali tees up the problems. We discuss all the challenges. We have a lot of case studies and things that have worked well and not worked well. But then next week, Todd's going to be talking about how his framework is a very useful, practical, and effective tool to become the entrepreneur and owner that you know you need to be in order to be fulfilled and to get your company to where you want it to be. A lot of these concepts are tying into principle number one of the Intentional Growth Principles of your drivers. What do you want from the business and why? How do you get that right mindset? And then how do you practically put a plan into place? Go check out our Intentional Growth course. You can do it with one-on-one coaching by yourself or with a virtual cohort group. We cover five and a half hours of videos of business valuations, deal structures, ESOPs, private equity, strategic planning, the correct financial foundation to align your strategic plan with a value growth plan so that way you have as many options as possible. Check it out, arcona.io, go to the education tab. So without further ado, here's my interview with Allie Taylor. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Ali, how are you?
1: I'm great, Ryan. How are you doing?
0: Um, It's a good thing we didn't have the listeners listening to our conversation we were having because we were talking about the last four plus years. You and I—we met uh, when I saw you and uh, Andrew at a conference in the in the industry four years ago, and you guys were you were talking about owner psychology and the relationship with business owners and their business. I'm like, well, I got a podcast at that point. It was called Life After Business, and I'm like, I think she was speaking to us and. (laughs) It, like over the last 4 years you guys I I was just saying that you guys have the you you've done it you've been able to stay with it and you're doing some really cool stuff with business owners you got your dissertation since then you said it was 3 years ago but we got a lot to catch up on and I'm I'm pretty excited so thank you for coming back on the show
1: Of course it's it's a pleasure and 3 years ago when we met at that conference it was you and your dad
0: Yes yes and you
1: had just exited your family business
0: yeah, well it would have, because it would have been 4 years ago I think, and it, we sold in 2014 and we didn't even have kids yet. So I've got a very solid benchmark in time that they're four now. <laughs> so, <laughs>
2: it's
0: hard to argue with their age. That's,
2: no, right. That's I'm exci- right.
0: I'm excited to have you back on, Allie, because um, I think I've grown a lot over the years and you know, I think you and I have both have been exposed into trying to help the marketplace in different ways. And we've, we were just talking about how we've kind of come to the same conclusions but you're approaching it, at a, I think, in a different perspective than I am. So why don't you just, for the listeners that didn't listen four years ago, you, your background, what were your research was in, and kind of where you guys are today?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I was started out in my mother's womb. Just kidding. We won't go back far. I go back that far. That'd be torture. Um, So we started out in general management consulting after being in executive roles. Andrew was with McKinsey and Company. I had a bachelor's in biology and chemistry, master's in marriage and family therapy, met in this executive role, got sick of solving other people's problems, wanted to go solve our own. So what do you do? You start a business, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness gracious. We were also talking about how hard that is before.
0: Buy a business, don't start one.
1: <laughs> Buy a business, don't start one. I agree. Um, although it's been a labor of love. Yes. And w- in the general management consulting world, kept right into the same issues with business owners. We can help them with the business stuff fairly simply, right? Look at their financials, look at their operations, look at their structure, look at the organization, look at their culture, look at all these different things. And then you help them create change, and then you wave goodbye, and they're off to the races. But we felt that wasn't happening. And it was really frustrating because we genuinely cared about business owners. And what I didn't know at the time was that I had actually been part of a family business for a number of years without knowing it. My, my past life, my ex-husband and I did business turnaround work. And what I discovered going through my research and dissertation was all of a sudden the duh alley light bulb went on. And I realized I hadn't ran a family business and the business is part, a huge part of what destroyed our marriage just mm-hmm. yeah. completely. And it was tied in large part to identity. Mm-hmm. And I won't out my spouse, my ex spouse. So I don't want to go into it too deeply on that, but it really created some dynamics in our marriage and in our family and in the way he lived life that were not healthy, not good, ripped us apart. Fast forward meet Bo Burlingham during my research (laughs) (laughs) you had on your podcast a couple times. I am a huge Bo fan. And the pieces started to click. What's required to grow and scale a business are certain personality attributes. The literature is super clear about that. And I won't go into the details but there's white papers on our website. But there's there's five critical personality attributes that are necessary. Then when you look at the economic data from I think I looked at the 2012 U.S. Economic Census. Predictable growth curves where there are significant points of attrition where family businesses or individual businesses just can't scale past. Mm-hmm. Only four percent ever get above a million annual revenue.
0: Which is crazy. And then there's only six million com- privately held companies with employees in the U.S. So I yeah. mean, not you're you're in the like. People are in the small percentage when they're, when they're yes. 5, 10, 20, 30 million.
1: Yeah, they are. I mean, okay, so in that debt, it was like 28 million businesses. So they include everything, right? But even to take like, let's take the $10 million annual revenue point, because that's a point where businesses start to get pretty complex, a little mm-hmm. bit more complex. How you manage and lead is much, much different. 0.4% of businesses ever reach it. We want to understand what's happening in these businesses. Where's the leverage points? What's going on? It, it's not the market environment, but it came down to decision making and how the owners of those businesses do and don't make decisions. And so what that told us is it, it's not the variables in the business or money that you really need to look at because those are symptoms. The fundamental solution is found in the variables attached to the owner or owners. hmm And so my whole dissertation was understanding the psychology of low to mid-market owners at points of significant transition, scaling through those predictable growth barriers, engaging in the sale of a business, or the hardest, engaging in family succession in a business.
0: So, and we're going to, if you want to do it right now, I want to peel back the different personality types too, and like how those people, because you've got them bucketed into, you said five, I think it was?
1: um personality types well there's five uh, I'll, personality I'll, I'll... there's five personality attributes
0: attributes okay
1: got
0: no, yeah 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 So I remember the the different type i just remember your powerpoint honestly and i'm thinking about like the the owner's face and then there was like animals tied. Uh, oh know. i know it what you're talking about yeah
1: yeah yeah that's a, that's a little okay, bit different okay. a little okay. bit different <laughs> related but different yeah 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 so yeah that's a fun one too where that ties right is that we found out that personality style is a predictor. And that's common to all of us. We all process information at different speeds through head and heart. And you can put people in buckets and learn how to work efficiently with them. But that wasn't the secret to success for, for business owners. It's um, high innovativeness. They, they see things that other people just don't see. They have a higher tolerance for ambiguity than most people. Every time they enter, encounter a new problem or a new um, need to grow, completely uncharted waters that they have to be able to conquer. And they're super comfortable with that. Goal achievement, very high need for goal achievement. They don't just no. compete.
2: Yes, Ryan, it's
1: true. <laughs> no way. It's true. Your dad, he, yeah, this need that we have as business owners to compete not just with the world and our marketplace, but with ourselves and to be better next year than we were last year, at least in the early years, that starts to wane as owners have been there for a while and they start to get tired of the challenge. They can't figure out how to conquer through but it's pretty high in the entrepreneurial years. Um, A need for control. They have what's called an internal loci control. And this people like other advisors go, oh, they're so controlling. And they think it's a bad thing, but it's a great thing. Because it's what they have to have to push through barriers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: People who don't have this internal locus of control have an external loci of control. Those are the people that say, "Oh, the world's doing this to me. I have limit- You know, I can't do anything. I can't solve my problems. I'm stuck in my tight little thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're never going to make it in business." And that's a continuum. So, I'm sorry, I'm not. I wasn't prepared. Core, to I I, in order,
0: innovativeness, tolerance for ambiguity, risk taking, risk
1: taking propensity. Yep, that's the fifth one. So they have a higher than average risk-taking propensity, but here's the critical difference. It's prudent risk, risk they think they can control. It's not like going to Vegas and betting it all on red or black on a roulette wheel. It's how all these five attributes come together to, to help them believe and often will into being their ability to take a prudent risk and have it come to fruition. It's you sticking it out. Mm-hmm. for four plus years until you figured it out because you just knew you could do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I, another example, I, I had someone explain this to me is of the risk. If So if you took the general population, have them go do like a backflip off of balance beam, most yeah. people couldn't do it. But if you took someone that was skilled at it, they would land it 97% of the time. So it's not as risky risky for that person who's skilled at it, but for the general population, it is. So it's just, it was an interesting way of looking at risk.
1: Absolutely true, and it, at the end of the day, that flip off the balance beam is all about self confidence. Having confidence in your own physical and intellectual and emotional ability to do it. That's the same thing for owners.
0: So, like as we as we unpack, you were talking about a couple of themes of things that are important right now, and then I also want to like dive into like what is what what does hinder people like these five attributes? How they are either positive or negative depending on the life cycle of the business. You know, fun thing that I learned. Alia, over the last handful of years is like when someone says like, okay, what's the biggest hurdle for entrepreneurs to get to that next stage? And there was a couple of things and take this and use this as you're about to explain your situation. Okay. Or some of the data is that it's understanding truly the value of the business. Like, cause a private equity firm will go in there and say, well, I'm just going to hire these people and do these mechanical things to grow intrinsic value. Yeah. And it's not ego played. They're not going in there for the lifestyle, for the distributions, for all that stuff. They're looking at it differently, like long term value versus annual income lifestyle. And the second part of this, which I think will feed up nicely into yours, where I had some guy, a young, young kid, ask me, like, what's the big, what, why are some of these people, why didn't they keep it? And what took, what stopped them from getting to the next level? And I said, you know what? The amount of people that have been on my show where they sold, because as they hired their next level team, They literally didn't get the kudos anymore and they were irrelevant. So instead of saying, Hey, I'm netting 10 million a year, they're going, no one likes me anymore. And they sell the business versus the private equity firm. who That's not why they own the business. They own it for wealth creation. So it's like a couple of those things that I've noticed that are themes, which I think file like our funnel really closely into what you're about to kind of break apart because it's truly a mental mindset and how they're looking at their business.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to just take those themes and play with them a little bit with you, if that's okay.
0: Yeah, no, I love it.
1: So when you think about what you just described there, the the owners going through this experience and there, I'm thinking of one in particular that comes into my mind and they finally decide that they can't do it all. They want to scale that goal achievement is pushing them or they most often have somebody who's a trusted person, a spouse, somebody who's saying, I want you to spend more time with me, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're always at the business. There's some motivating force that is enough to push them to make that decision. But they've built the business so that it works with their psychology. They've created Mm -hmm. their psychological castle so that they know every room, how it all works, and it's comfortable for them. When they bring in a new team, they have to work and be differently. They have to do differently. They have to think differently. They all of a sudden have to collaborate and listen to other people. They're still the king of the castle, but now they've got to take on a completely different role. And they're usually really good at sales or really good at... The, at operations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now these people are coming in and they're telling them no, right? If you've got a good team and you've hired them, they're challenging your thinking, testing your limitations, and that can be draining. Mm-hmm. For somebody who doesn't engage in personal mastery, who doesn't do self-reflection and know how to grow and think differently, or if they do, they they don't, to your point on mindset, they don't have a big enough vision for what it could be or how it could get there. They're actually truly satisfied where they are and they don't know how to explain it. So that's Bo's whole paradigm in part of being a small giant. For some owners... It's okay to get the business to a certain size and just say, This is all I want to do. It's right. like to be honest about it
0: well, and I think to yeah and to add to a point of that is it it's usually this mismatch with i want i'm I'm okay being a small giant, but I think it's worth twenty million yes. or it's like okay, but you just have to plan like if you're not gonna if you have to understand the value because if in four years it's only worth five or ten then you have to maybe either save or you have to like somehow understand the cash flow and the value of the company to align your lifestyle with it. But there's this mismatch of, I want to do this, but I also want it to be worth
1: this. Yes, absolutely. So, and that comes, so Noam Wasserman, N-O-A-M Wasserman, um, was at Harvard at the time. I think he's at USC now. He did some really good research on how entrepreneurs think and the relationship between wealth creation, and control. And so he calls it, in his the book I believe is The Founder's Dilemma. And in one part of the book, he talks about literally whether or not an owner wants to be king or wants to be rich. Do they want control or do they want wealth? And he did studies comparing and contrasting young companies and old companies and their enterprise value against the amount of control that they had. Mm. And what he found, the trend line that it was mind-blowing. The trend line for both old and young companies, and it was in the IT space because they're kind of the fruit flies of the business mm-hmm. life cycle. So take old with a grain of salt. If I yep. recall correctly, it's something like 10 years or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. Right? What he found is the more control that was given up, the greater the increase in enterprise value by double. So. Wow for those businesses where the owner maintained board and CEO control or didn't have a board and they were just the CEO acting in both management and governance they had half the enterprise value that a business who had completely released ownership and board control even if um or CEO and mm-hmm. board control even if they remained owner mm-hmm. double the enterprise value it
0: doesn't that that's awesome data it doesn't surprise me though
1: i mean no it comes down to Your identity gets tied up in how you make decisions. And our identity is either going to be our superpower or it's going to be our kryptonite at every phase of the business life cycle.
0: Can you give a fantastic statement? Can you give some examples of kryptonite versus superpower?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when your identity is your superpower, you don't mind being challenged by other people. Your identity is not on the line. You're not experiencing... Distant, You're not experiencing stress inside when somebody's coming to you and challenging your ideas. It does. You don't take it as a threat. You're like, Ryan. That's great. You know what? Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Help me understand that. Help me. Help me look at this differently. I don't get it. Can you? Can you give me some resources? They're really receptive, hungry to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. Identity superpower. Your identity is your kryptonite. When you're annoyed by people that come to you and challenge you. When you just give them the hand, when you don't want to hear, when you close down, when you just want to use those entrepreneurial traits to drive through because you just decide they don't get it and you Mm -hmm. put up a wall and you feel like they're invaders of your psychological castle. Mm -hmm. Your idea is your kryptonite. You're never going to make the best decisions because you don't know how to leverage the people around you.
0: It's super interesting because I just had this gentleman on my show called Jason Dorsey and uh Z economy, it's all they they did some insane research on generation Z and millennials. You would just geek out with him, Allie. And <laughs> but what was interesting to to why it relates to your comment is this generation, so like my generation came in. And was like, okay, things are not efficient and all, you know, but we ran into the bureaucracy and the red tape and the old way of doing things, not, you know, into that exponential growth. Like we are now where Gen Z just expects it. Like they've grown up with Alexa, they're 24 now, So as they're coming in and he, like, honestly, I learned a lot about myself on this show because when I came in and we were talking about like, we need to do these, we need, we need to do this. We need to do that. It was actually offending my dad. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs see that where it's like, it's not, I'm not saying like what you've built is awesome. Like, I don't know how many times we have to pat you on the the back, uh, you know, any entrepreneur, not just my dad, it's, we're recognizing that it's valuable, but in order to continue to grow, we have to do certain things. And generation Z is just going to force this like a, like a tidal wave alley, because they're talking about the expectations from customer service, communication, how they're, how they're uh, working on the employment and the team and the culture where, again, if you're like offended, By that stuff, which, I mean, I can get it, but you're going to, it's going to be a major challenge.
1: Yeah. And that's not just a generational thing. It's true. Generationally, it happens more consistently. What's happening, what's happening in generational businesses, family businesses is they are successful because of the way they've always run things. And so with the younger generations, whether you're X, Y, Z, whatever stage you're in, the younger generations have to figure out how to earn the right to be heard, right? So seek to understand yep. before being understood. And that's the mistake they make. The yep. mistake the now, that's next gen. The mistake the now generation makes is when we're empowered, we think, we've always done it this way. We're successful. If it's not broke, don't fix it. And we forget, it's a cognitive bias, a blind spot that we forget that this generation has sees things and has access to information like we don't even have a clue about unless we're intentional about growing in those ways. And so how do we help them understand, but also how do we seek to understand? So Mm -hmm. when when you come in, you have all these ideas. If your dad's identity were a superpower at the time and not a kryptonite, if he experienced Mm -hmm. you as a partner and not a threat, what he could have done would have been If you would have come in and say, hey dad, help me understand what's going on. And you would have said, What if we tried it this way? When you're both in working well and like hearing each other, then dad turns to you and says, and this happens in family businesses, I've got one right now that I love. I watch his dad do it, it's great. He's like, All right, help me understand like, what am I missing? Where am I blind? Let's give it a try. Even if he knows the kid's going to fail, even if he's tried that thing a hundred times, he lets the kid go ahead and fail because he recognizes that's how he learned.
0: Well, and I think you, you brought up an interesting point that family, like, you know, depending on the family. So there's a big, it depends. Yes. But like if there's trust there, it's going to naturally take place to some degree. However, the dial, I mean, what you said is a lot more efficient than I think a lot of people do, but even if they've got yeah. trust, they're going to do that. But if they're not family members, but people are like, then it becomes even more difficult, right? Because you have to build that trust in order to be able to have those conversations. And I think in the last few years, since you and I had these conversations, Brene Brown has become very popular and Ray yeah. Dalio talking about open radical transparency and having yeah. trustful conversations. And I think that this might tie into your your comment before we hit record about the blind spots people now have, because whether it's generational changes or technical changes, we now have the pandemic, we have all these different things where you you had mentioned something about blind spots and psychology, so maybe kind of give a little bit of uh, more uh, detail. What do you mean by like okay, how are these blind spots happening? What are they, and how does the psychology of the owners impact that?
1: Oh yeah, so the, it's just human nature, right? We all have what's called cognitive biases—the way our brain processes information. We have these, we don't take in the information as objectively as we want to believe. We we have different ways based on our knowledge, ability, skill, experience, and sometimes just how our brain's wired um, to process information. We see things differently and we make decisions based on what we believe to be fact. And it's not. And there are so many great shows out there. There's great research, but there are really funny shows about how people were conditioned to respond in certain ways, and so we just do. We're just come out of our mouth, and we're like, where would that come from? Or we make snap decisions because our brain is first and foremost desired for our preservation, for our safety, right? So we've got this fast operating system. It's called System One. Daniel Kahneman's works fantastic for this. Yes, it is. Thinking fast, thinking slow, fast and slow. So if we're operating out of system one all the time, it's instinctual. It's reactionary. It's it's the same system that operates our breathing and our heart. When we're going to make intentional decisions, if we want to make really good ones, most often, it's not about preserving your life. It's not like I'm out jogging. This really happened, by the way. I'm out jogging. And all of a sudden, my brain perceives a rattlesnake. I'm already turned and running before... I really realize what has happened, mm-hmm. right? Because it's that system one, life preservation. If I make decisions like that all the time, can you imagine what's going to happen to my stock portfolio?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> not mm-hmm. very good. Right, right, right. Shift to system two, all of a sudden, i got to put in effort, like a lot of effort because my brain's not naturally wired for that. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I'm more fast-paced and outspoken, logic-based. So the lion in that model. Oh, that's what I want I told you I'd get there. Uh, So for someone wired like us, the cautious, slow, reflective feels like sometimes we're moving through quicksand because it's not Mm -hmm. action-oriented. So we have to train ourselves to make decisions that way. What's happened with the pandemic, if people are having all these psychological threats happening below the surface that they're not aware of. So their biases are playing into decision-making, their fear is playing into decision-making, their um, anxiety, their tension, even if they're really successful. So I've got a couple of clients at the moment who like they started making PPE type plays and their business went through the roof. Now what they're afraid of is what's going to happen when it's over. Yep. So no matter where you are, you're dealing with some sort of fear or anxiety. There's stuff in the environment And you're not taking the time to reflect on it. You're reacting. So strengths are magnified. Weaknesses are magnified. And sometimes there's a misalignment. So you're at a place in your business where your strengths are becoming your weakness. So those five personality Mm -hmm. attributes. They're not what we need right now for a lot of businesses. What we need are to learn how to access the people around us. And that's not always natural.
0: So what, I couldn't agree more, and I think about like maybe you can give some examples, maybe that are pandemic related, but then also sure. maybe that are growth stage related. Sure, the pandemic.
1: Sure. So, um, Vern Harnish actually has a, a a pretty good book out there on. Um, it's called Scaling Up. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did some super interesting work in there about complexity. It's really tied to a lot of psychological research. I don't know if Vern knows it or not. I should probably, I should probably ask him. But there's a lot of research around in um, social psychology, consumer behavior, entrepreneurial literature that talks about how people deal with complexity. Our brains are wired for simplicity. So as owners start to grow these businesses and they become more complex, more people, more need yep. for communication, more, more need for systems, all of a sudden, you don't even do in your books anymore. You, you, don't even, you don't even know when transactions are happening. You don't even know, unless it's major capital expenditure, you mm-hmm. might not even know what's happening when your business starts to scale, particularly beyond about $30 million. You start having financial people in that speak a language you don't understand and unless you educate yourself and learn how to use your cash flow statement, your balance sheet and your profit and loss statement together to tell the story, you feel like you're completely yeah. out of control. Yeah,
0: or you're so. gripping tight or making it try you know, almost probably unconsciously keeping it small so you can keep it yeah. under control. So what 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 was the study? like a, a, is there some sort of like judge or like assessment of how complex you think?
1: There's not an assessment that I know of. That'd be a really cool study. There you go. There's your
0: distraction. For
1: the day. No, I don't want another you're dissertation. What? Well, I know people with multiple PhDs. One's enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that again. But I love research, so I might just do a fun one. But you can actually go back, and if you did meta-analysis, there are some people that have done not a complete study of what you're describing. That would lead to a psychometric. But you can see at different stages based on annual revenue, usually as an indicator, a number of employees, the amount of complexity that's in the business. And then layer in the market environment. And so you asked about COVID and regular. This is true in both COVID and regular. When you layer those things in, the complexity starts to go nuts. Because of COVID, that complexity has accelerated. Everything about the market environment that virtually every business is in they've had to face significant shifts in their market environment. People who weren't digital went digital. And if you couldn't figure out how to go digital, a lot of them perished already. We've seen a lot of them closing. How you do restaurant, how you do, yep. do sanitation, all these things are, are changing. And that's forcing people to actually, I love it because it's an opportunity. The hardest thing to do with a, a business is to get them to change. And the hardest stage of change is the unfreezing. COVID has unfrozen everything because they've had to be open to change. So before it refreezes, my advice to people is to stop and take a look and scan your environment. Do a rapid scan across your business, your money, and your self-domains, and know where your points of leverage are going forward. It's what are the new opportunities?
0: It's interesting that you talk about like the, the need to change. And like it just... It's so crazy because, like, when I—I I mean, I, I'm very aware that based on my age, like, I did not—I was not a part of these the mania in some of that because like right now you got va- asset valuations that from the yes. Fed printing money that are off the charts and probably yes. not going to stop anytime soon. But like, so you have this mania, and then you have like, the, but the the fact of the last 12 years being a bull run—you don't have to change that much. Yeah. Like, if you figured out a product pricing fix fit in the marketplace where there's a need like i mean like it's so funny because ellie i think about over the last four or five years when you and i have been trying to help change you know change people's behaviors you're like well here's what you got to do and you're like wait a second i'm netting a million bucks and you're saying that i need to hire a gm change my systems do all these things and it's going to cost me money on my net income statement like no thanks but yeah. like cuz they don't understand the someone that's saying that might not understand the, like how that's impacting long term sustainability or value creation. So right. hopefully that paradigm shift in mindset gives you some reason to change but you're right like the unfreezing is the hardest
1: part. It's the hardest part but they're more they're forced open now. Yeah. Right? We all are. Even even me and in my team and the way they challenge me and I invite it, right? Because I've been through the the horrible stuff. I've done all the research. I want to be I want my identity to stay my superpower. I don't want to create a psychological castle with guards and rails. I I want to be as open as possible and invite people to challenge me, which is great (laughs) until they do. And then you have to start thinking about things differently. And what I've learned on a personal level that then you go, oh yeah, duh, because the research already told us that. And I've tried to tell clients that for years (laughs) is you've got to count the opportunity cost. And that is one of the biggest blind spots we have. We fall into the sunk cost fallacy. We've already invested in things. So we should keep throwing money at it because we don't want to lose money. What is that? Um, I've had to learn that one again. Success bias, but I've done it this way in the past and it works, so I should keep doing this. And then the third one, the big one, particularly right now is opportunity cost.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We're not counting the cost of opportunity and we're not using time as a competitive advantage for the, for the owners that are really stuck at the moment, they're just waiting for this whole thing to be over. I even have a couple that are telling me when the election happens, this will all go away. And I'm like-
0: How many times I've heard that? And it's like, you're missing, regardless, you're missing, whatever you're talking about for taxes, and I think by the time this releases, and the election may or may not even be over, but like, it's like the, the market has changed regardless. Nice. And so like, yeah, there's a, the, the opportunity cost of the time elapsing is huge
1: huge but the owners that are getting it and are open we're looking at business model in new ways they're they're getting reinvigorated and re-energized and so what we're talking about then is okay so what what's our action plan what's our really defined strategy so we can blow it up fast or fail fast because now it's that prudent risk thing again right and so how do they take prudent risk and as long as we can create safe on- ramps so they're not putting everything at risk, most of them are able to free up capital from other parts of their business that are dormant to try new things, to mm-hmm. do some R and D that they couldn't have done before to go digital in new ways. So for me, it's a bit of exciting time for well, them.
0: I think, and I agree. And I think you and I, like you, we've leaned into change being okay. And the uncertainty of what we've been talking about, what we've both gone through, but like going back to like your study on the, the mental mindset yeah. and these attributes the barriers and the anxiety that this creates, especially, you know, you throw in like you're younger. Hey, it's okay. I've got a little bit longer, a longer timeline versus if you're older, like what, like when you're saying, okay, if someone, if someone's listening in and they go, Allie, I intellectually get what you're saying, but there's a whole different thing called emotions that I'm dealing with.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How
0: How do you, how do you process? How do you, how do you start to process getting to that point where you're excited about this?
1: uh there's no one way it we we meet where i'm at where they're at it's some for some of them it takes them a long time to tell their story you mentioned trust earlier and trust and rapport are absolutely critical and it's never my ideas so um my job is to catalyze their thinking to catalyze their insights to help them be and do differently and it's not just the owners it's their management teams oftentimes we have to neutralize those Sometimes one person on a management team that keeps everybody stuck because they rely on expert power to keep everybody else trapped, and they're really protecting their own turf, right? So if we can neutralize, and those people are out in waves, that's one of the biggest obstacles right now. So neutralizing that.
0: <laughs> I like what you say. Neutralize. I can just. I know exactly. I've just got so many visuals right now. Yeah, yeah. Think, yeah.
1: Just the voice, right? And, and it's usually like challenging their own thinking, giving, making them feel secure. So then the owner feels free. Now, if we can get the owner to feel really free and like it's possible, not that we ignore dissenting voices. Dissenting voices are important, but they need to be data-driven and objective, not opinions or not, naysayers. I think. Yeah, just not. Yeah, or naysayers. Yeah. And if you can do that, and then I have a couple that this pandemic couldn't have come at a worse time. They're... Um, I'm thinking of one, actually two in particular, both less than 18 months from their planned exit. Um, One was family transition. One was sale. Um, Height of their season, both were having record years. Mm -hmm. Both were in niche industries that got wiped out by the pandemic. (sighs) And so they're just hanging on. One, I think will recover because they're choosing to innovate. And they've taken a really great digital play. The other one, they've got PPP money that's giving them breathing room, but the PPP money for a lot of these businesses is just hiding oh, issues. It's a
0: bridge along to not another spot or not another side of the bridge. It's ignore right. sometimes.
1: Even if it's a grant, yep. it, it was a lifeline. It's just delaying. So, it, and they're not, they're not, one of them is not doing the things that they really need to do. And I think time is not going to be their friend.
0: So when you think about your 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 attributes of the the especially the control and the risk and the uncertainty, like how like when you're thinking about the successful people, yeah, how are they leaning on people like in their advisor circle or their team members? Yeah, probably relinquish a little bit of that control. That like I mean, how are like what are they doing to deal with this?
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish answering your other question first, and I'll come back. So the old what you were what I was getting at there was more mature and nearing the end of where they wanted to be so they were going to have a happy exit what they're dealing with is grief oh yeah right so that that was a long way to give you the answer dealing with so we have to help them process that and that's what's keeping them stuck um whether or not we can be successful well the environment's just really tough
0: well and let's talk about like what is that grief too because i think even putting a name to it will probably help i've watched it where it's you know, someone that was going to be free of their role, like, yes. and they're just burnt out. And the fact that they like, they aren't as close to summer vacation as they thought makes yeah. them like just sad, you know what I mean? Cause it's energy to build value. Like it's takes a lot of work. And so, and then it's also probably some sort of financial grief of, you know, having some sort of number that's not the same anymore. Any other yeah. examples that you got? I mean it's
1: you nailed it. It's they wanted to finish like on exit on top, as Bo says. And they and the finish line was there and they had worked for 50 years. The 50 years would have been so 48. They would have hit 50 and, and the exit. And so they had this target and this milestone and they were on pace. And it feels like the whole world was yanked out from underneath them. Yep. And can't do they have the energy to recover. And if they do, it won't be where it was. And there's nothing they can do about it. So for them, it's accepting where we are and figuring out what's the best we can do. And it has nothing to do with it. They don't need the money. They don't need the money. It's their employees and their family and really wanting to land it well for them. That's the grief.
0: Well, and how much of this too, is it, as it relates to even everything that we're talking about, where like most entrepreneurs are visionaries and you have like this specific vision. So you have this vision of what you think the future is going to look like. And then when it changes you have to reconcile that, right? And I think that's where like some of this happens too, where at some point you have to like continue to modify what your vision is instead of being so like, because then your ability to probably process it is better. I'm just it up, but. Yeah,
1: study after study after study. Our natural behavior is to put 10 times the effort into holding on to something we have, including a vision, then to letting go of it to reach for something that could be even better. And in some studies, even if there was a guarantee, they don't believe the guarantee and they hold on to what they have in part because they work so hard to get it. And we don't, we, we're we not aware we're doing that. We think we're making rational decisions.
0: So what are the ways in the business then that you're, you're, is it strategic planning or like what are the ways that you're mechanically, once you've kind of been able to process the mental side of the, the psychology side of this, how, like, what are the mechanical ways that you're seeing people tie the two together?
1: Um, it's actually the process of processing and working in the business are there. We do it at the same time. It's, it's the vehicle for how they do it. So most often they haven't really separated management and governance, and that's all about decision-making. It's all about empower, creating clarity and empowering your staff and knowing your financials and knowing how to use your financials for governance or operational management and how to drive your business. So the first thing we'll focus on is creating a separation between management and governance, even if it's in the same people. So they know what's happening.
0: For the people that are listening that have been hearing me, it's the difference between ownership and management role. Like you're truly separate. Like you get paid for your job, but then you have equity, which is at the ownership level. That's what you're referring to?
1: Um, Yeah. So the ownership, yeah. And the decision-making that goes with it, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes Mm -hmm. people think, so ownership, governance, think board.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Operational management think day to day working with your executive team to drive the strategy internally and how um, governance ownership sets the vision. They tell they give the mandate to management. Management comes back and says whether or not it's achievable. If so, how they're going to achieve it. Governance says we do or don't agree with that. Pushes back and then they come to an agreement. Management goes away, executes reports. Governance holds them accountable. What is separating this? that is really critical,
0: really critical and really hard. So like, you know, for, what why is, is it hard?
1: Wait, let me pause there. Cause I want to challenge you on that. Why, why do you say it's hard?
0: Well, I wouldn't say necessarily it's hard, but I'm, I'm, I'm more regurgitating what people come on and the things that I've seen on the show. Um,
1: tell me what they say.
0: I think it's cause well, my, my, I'll, I'll maybe I'll tell you my takeaway. Right. It's because people do not know the difference between what the company's worth. And their role. Like so they 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 put in their distributions and their salary and management. They put in a big blender. And then they I actually did an episode on my podcast called Solving Problems Through Payroll because they just solve all their emotional dynamics by hiring people or giving people perks or giving people trucks or going on president's club instead of saying, here's the payroll. You get fired or hired based on your job and your role and your responsibility, and then here's ownership. And then you can have people in different... And most people, they just don't know what the company's worth. So they don't know how to view the business from the ownership perspective. And I think you're dealing with maybe like... I mean, I know you're dealing with some high, high revenue companies that are private. So maybe it's a little bit easier as you naturally get more cash flow. Like I think you get above the 10 million... no. (laughs) <laughs> Doesn't get easy, so like that—that—that's kind of like my takeaway of like what the problem is. And then once I've noticed, Ali, is that once people get that, and then they can see it in the financials, then they can actually process psycho- psychologically better.
1: Yeah, that's a piece. So using the tool, I really like how you explain that, Ryan, especially when you drive it back to the financials. So when you what you what we're both talking about is using your financials to measure the health of your business and to know who makes what decision when to drive the health. Yes. Yep. I yep. agree. And yep. I think,
0: you know, the, the challenge with that, and this is where I, your research I think comes into play is that I've even seen people that finally get those numbers and they go, okay, I get it, but they're still addicted to the affirmation that the company gives them into their psychological castle like you're talking about.
1: Ah, now what you're talking about is the concept of role identity fusion. There
2: you go. So how (laughs) fused our
1: self-identity is to our role identity. And for those of us who are usually, if you're not intentional, it's gonna get fused. But for for most people who are not business owners, you move in and out of lots of different roles of your life really easily. For business owners, the research, it blew my mind, the level of role dandy fusion for successful owners, and that's the key, successful owners, gets fused. And the reason is because, and they don't know who they are apart from their role. The reason is because we all have these psychological needs that have to be satiated that we call motivational forces or motivational drivers. And when we satiate those through our five personality traits that we described earlier as entrepreneurs, through our role in the business, it's the only way we know how to get them met. Every time there's a threat to to that role, a change, a way of being, doing, thinking differently, we don't realize it, but we're processing at a really deep level and we're experiencing the fight, flight, or freeze response, whether we're aware of it or not. And that comes out usually through our through the control um, personality trait.
0: I think what you just did is you just summarized and captured what I see the majority of people deal with. Like the like the the main ceiling that people are hitting is they can even once they get the clarity of if they've gone through our education or they've looked at their financials and they still go like I just they're they're getting all their affirmation. Their ego is just getting thrive is thriving on that that fusion that they have, whether it's the strategic planning or the engineering or whatever it is, so they can't they don't know what that role could look like as just a board member or they don't know how to do that or where to like get those the where to get that satisfaction other places. And that's where like and i said at the beginning, private equity doesn't do that. Like they're going, what's the cash flow? What can we do? Like we're gonna hire consultants and, and, and integrators and GMs and we don't need to be told that a boy, I mean, not to say that that's a good, because that's a good thing. And if you love that, solve for that, but yes. you have to understand it. I just, just being aware of it, I think is the most, is one of the biggest challenges.
1: But you know what private equity does? Destroys culture in the business. So you talked you and unless it's rare uh, that's not actually fair it's okay it, so it, 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 no, be a little fair <laughs> no,
0: you don't even have to, you don't even have to explain yourself because sonny vanderbeck was just on my show okay he raised over a billion dollars with an indefinite hold period and it's conscious cap oh yeah so i've had oh, two-
1: conscious capitalism yeah yeah
0: yeah i mean so i've had the ceo of alexander from conscious capitalism on the show and then sonny vanderbeck who, and Brent B. who both raised their, uh, Brent's was like $50 million fund. And then, uh, Sunday's was over a billion dollars infused with conscious capitalism. Like it's first thing on. So like, but he was a pioneer and he's like the 0.01%. So like, right. yes, i you don't have to explain yourself too much because the listeners have gathered that. Like okay, if, cool. I, if it's not set up correctly, just, the chances of unintended consequences, yes. extremely high.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And then you look at the study out of Harvard. I think it was Hederson, James Hederson. Strategy, by aligning your strategy with the right culture, you get a 50% improvement on your bottom line.
0: Say that again, aligning? Uh,
1: By aligning your strategy and your culture, your organizational culture is so important that you will get a 50% improvement to your bottom line or in the study, in the companies you studied, a 50% improvement to the bottom line when those two things were aligned. When they're not aligned is when you get friction, you're not achieving goals, your management team is like pulling their hair out all the time, people are rats on reels, running hard and getting nowhere.
0: And it's so funny because Sonny goes, I mean, literally the fund has a date. He goes, the date is on the calendar that they have to liquidate everything for it. And he goes, so just ask him what the date is. And so we did a whole dissection of private equity. And it was so funny because he was like talking to his buddy who owns a, I think he was a GP at a PE firm. And his friend was like, we got a great company. It's got great cash flow, and a great management team and a great product and service. And we're killing it. And we're going to sell it and make a bunch of money. And somebody goes, what are you going to do with the money? He goes, find a great company with great cash. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, yeah. Why would you sell it? Well, you have to.
1: Right. Right. That's how PE works. That's unless you have a, unless you have a, Business uh, portfolio model that is that uh, conscious capitalism rare. or the long-term rare. Rare, rare, rare. rare. Some family offices do it really well because yeah. they it value might. the family, but it's, it's rare.
0: Because you and I and Bo and Jack Stack and, and some of these people that we've been talking about all have very similar philosophies. And the fact that you and I went through the same realization that I, I believe voted that everybody hates the word exit. So mm-hmm. how I've overcome that is you have to understand value and when and how you can liquidate but you don't have to sell as long as you're growing value and you know how your story could unfold. So you're solving towards it. One thing that I've noticed and my listeners have gathered over uh, the journey is that ESOPs become this amazing mechanism to harvest your wealth, but create like it, it literally truly went this assessment and the first principle of your drivers that solves so many things. And so like, I don't know what your thought, like as you're looking at people that are doing this, are they driving towards, like a big payday or are they like, like, what, what are you seeing? Like trends wise, as far as you, you kind of know where I'm going here.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 Uh, do they want the payday or do they want to live forever? So right. The people with uh, the Sumner Redstone model, their the succession plan is I'm never going to die. <laughs> They're all about control. They, their identity is so fused to their business. They can't even think about somebody doing it better than them. Way on the other hand, are owners who are going, look, I've had a great run. I really care about what happens to my business and my employees. My legacy is important. It's not everything. I want to either do a family transition and prepare the next generation, you know, years in advance to come in and take over, or I want to do a sell. So management buyouts. I'm seeing more of those at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's a family succession, doing the management buyout route, I think is really powerful because it preserves culture. We are seeing some ESOPs that. I'm I'm a little bit cautious because I've recently seen one that was uh, really did not go well. <laughs> it, it's all about the deal structure, boom, and the trustee.
0: Oh, yes, yes, yes. And if
1: you don't get that right, you are in not in good shape. So we've got a really good partner that we bring in whenever we're thinking about ESOP. And
0: just it, one, one, one uh, comment on that. Uh, my partner Pat says it perfectly: is that ESOPs literally change absolutely nothing about the operations of your business. So what you just said, like, is perfect. That it's all about the capital structure and the, how everything's put together, which was usually self-inflicted.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, self-inflicted or led astray. Yeah. Right. Good. Because yep. because they dangled down. You could you could never pay tax again if you structure your ESOP right. And you go, well, wait a second. Can you really never pay tax again? And even if you could, is that the smartest way to structure right. your ESOP? Is that your driving concern and, and not looking at the different financial models and options or ways to capitalize it.
0: So what are you, what are you also noticing as far as, and I know we're running short on time here, but the, the, the the psychology, the owners and the mindsets, as far as like, like where they're growing and how they eventually end up like towards these different exits, because like one thing that I've noticed a lot of because most owners, until like in the last like five plus years, where they're realizing there's a lot of different ways to, that this story yes. can unfold, that's not truly an exit like they originally thought. A lot of people, because they didn't build a sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow stream, they yep. almost are forced to sell to a strategic buyer when their energy is gone. But yep. then if they like build a sustainable, predictable cash flow machine, they have more options than they might not want to sell. So it's like, have you started to see like how mindset like tie or like perception of their identity ties to different outcomes? Oh yeah <laughs>
1: so so we'll leave the extremes out right so the the just wait for the ambulance at the bottom of the hill like be be there for them because they're gonna need you someday that's some, that's all you can do it's a very small percentage of the people or the people at the top end that they, every option is available to them because they're actively exploring three to five years in advance and setting themselves up really well. The vast majority of owners are somewhere in the middle where they're kind of sticking their toe in the water and running away because it's a little cold. They're waiting for the water to warm up, right, and all of a sudden be the perfect set of circumstances. For them, what we're seeing, what we're seeing work is, is really that exploratory phase that Bo is so big on that aligned with all the psychological research we did. And really digging in and, and not rushing it, doing at their own time. If they've got five-plus years, it's plenty of time. If they've got three-plus years, they've got a reasonable amount of time. And really taking the time not just to educate themselves but their family members and to go on that journey with people who are not motivated by money, no matter what decision you make. Right. they motivated solely to help you navigate this transition whatever it looks like in the future. Well,
0: and it, in, in what you just said, it's huge too, because if you take your approach of the exploratory phase that you talked about, and then Bo talks about, you're educating yourself, you're realizing the options, but an exit isn't necessarily an exit, right? I mean, it could be, you're just, because you're exiting your ownership, different your management role, it could be a transition. I mean, there's so many different ways to put it. I know we're running short on, t- go ahead.
1: Yeah, I'll say la- parting parting thing. The biggest challenge that that middle group has is the fear of being irrelevant right? And what what that's triggering is all those under the surface things bubbling up. By doing the exploratory work, you actually become more relevant. You become more relevant to the business. You become more relevant to the people in your life outside the business. And you get to create a pathway for you to be more relevant because you now potentially, if you choose to exit and liquidate, you now have the resources to have an impact that you may not have ever been able to dream before. hmm and so it's the opportunity to become more relevant. That is a motivating force for
0: them. Well, and it goes back to the, the the title of the show. Now is it's intentional. Like we're like if you want, if your impact is the business and you want to lean in to leverage the business, don't sell it. Somehow choose a different path. Right. I mean, it's just yep. it's about truly understanding those different options. So if you were to be, if you were uh, gonna leave the listeners with a takeaway, and they're sitting here and they're dealing with this cognitive dissonance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you know, what What would be some of your, like, what's the baby step? What's the 1% that can get them closer to how to process this and how to continue to view the end of the year and next year and how they're, how they're dealing in their journey?
1: Yeah, so I'd say um, that if you're struggling a little bit today and you don't want to struggle a whole lot tomorrow, then the first thing you can do is do something. Talk to one person. That's either been through it or take a step out just to learn one path that you could take to exit. Don't make any decisions. Just start to be curious.
0: Ooh, I like that. Start to be curious. That is perfect. Uh, Two more questions. Uh, What does intentional mean to you?
1: What does intentional mean to me? It means having a posture of thoughtful, directional movement.
0: Ooh, I like it. The last question is, what's the best way to get in touch with you, find more of your research, your data, and uh, and learn more?
1: Yeah, yeah. So our website is orangekiwillc.com. And you can reach us at info at And you could probably link to us off Orion's of website.
0: Yep. Yep. Okay. And then one last part, you got to tell everybody why it's orange kiwi. I mean, we didn't didn't bring it up, but I know it, but everybody else needs to.
1: Sure. So I was born and raised in Orange County, California. And my husband, that's my husband, friend, business partner that I always get in trouble for using that word, but I love it. Andrew (laughs) is a kiwi. Orange kiwi.
0: Yes. Allie, thank you so much for coming on the show again.
1: You're welcome, Ryan. It's always a pleasure. Have a great one.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed doing it. Allie's awesome. I love this topic. I love this concept. The reason we have principle number one as your drivers and why everybody needs to figure out who they are, what they want from their company and why is because you cannot build a strategic plan, a financial plan that gets you to the value growth that you want, implementing all your operational procedures and the strategies, all the things that you need to do need to be going Into the direction that you want, that creates a more valuable company, that gives you more options, ideally increases the probability that you're going to get the option that you want the most, all of these are predicated on the fact that you need to know who you are, what you want, and why, what size company is best for you, and how you can get there. The mindset becomes one of the most important parts, and knowing what you want today, so you can start solving for those tomorrow versus waking up and realizing that you didn't do the right things. The amount of people in the last week that had reached out to me and said, I have this LOI. What should I do about it? Way too late. Way, 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 way too late. You don't know who you are, what you want, what the right price is. Is this the right buyer? The amount of things that are unknown that you could have planned for is ridiculous. And I just think that understanding the stuff that Allie talked about today is crucial. Tune into next week when we're going to be talking to Todd Herman who's going to be talking about how the alter ego effect and his framework is a way to get your mind into the right spot so you can become one of the top performers and get into the top quadrant of what Ali and I were talking about for size of companies where everybody's chasing you and you have the most amount of options for your company, whether you want to keep it, cash flow it, transition it, sell it to an ESOP, whatever it is, true freedom are the options. Look forward to next week. Thanks for tuning in and I appreciate it very much.